Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, God and the Problem of Evil, with a message entitled, The Fall of Evil, Part 3. So turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One of the major themes in the Bible, both in the First and Second Testaments, is the theme of idolatry. I can think of no sin in the Bible that is more frequently denounced than the sin of idolatry. And that's fascinating because as I think about it, most Christians in our day are infrequently warned about the dangers of idolatry. You know, we normally warn our young about the dangers of sexual sins, and we also warn others about lying and sins of anger and abuse of others, or taking revenge on our enemies about stealing, taking the Lord's name in vain, and a host of sins, and that's all good and it's as it should be. But how is it that idolatry stopped making the list? I mean, after all, idolatry is the second of the Ten Commandments. Let me read it to you from Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, clearly, in this command, idolatry consists of making a carved image, bowing down to it, and calling it God. In the West, this is almost never practiced, and I know of no Christian that I've ever met who has told me that they are tempted by that practice. And so that might account for the sins that we stress. People are tempted with adultery and theft, coveting what is another's, but idolatry, at least the way that it's defined in the second commandment, Well, it seems all but gone. Or is it? I know of all manner of more subtle definitions of idolatry. Tim Keller has said that idolatry is that thing that we can't live without. Keller states that we are commanded to make the Lord our highest joy, but when our hearts are enraptured by something else, that thing becomes our idol. And so, for instance, we can make an idol of money or sports or cars, even, says Keller, of our own spouses. He says, if a man's wife dies, he should grieve deeply for he misses her and his heart becomes heavy. But if his wife is an idol, once she dies, he's incapable of living for his reason for living was in her. An idol, says Keller, is that thing in our lives that once it's taken away, we lose our reason for living. And by the way, I once met a man like that. He and his wife had built a beautiful motel. It it was intended as a lover's getaway. It was hardly finished when she died, and when I saw it, it had no guests and it was slowly deteriorating. The owner told me, I have no reason to live. Now, while it's true that when we set our highest affections on anything but the Lord, that indeed is sin, for no one deserves our devotion but him alone. You know, we can enjoy things, but devotion belongs to the Lord alone. But is that idolatry? Is this a subtle version of making a carved image and calling that God? Now, I'm going to come back to that because I think a definition of idolatry is key to understanding how to live the victorious Christian life. Furthermore, idolatry is a very great sin before the Lord, so we had better know what it is. We've been studying the book of Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk chapter 2 is a chapter that reveals God's intention for Babylon. Babylon is a tool in God's hands in which he will use them to punish Judah for her sins. And when Judah has been punished, Babylon herself, that horrible monster of cruelty, will herself be punished by God. And so in anticipation of what God is planning for Babylon, chapter 2 contains a series of five taunts taken up against Babylon. Habakkuk calls the nations, and especially the righteous, to take to taunting Babylon, for her destruction is sure. Each taunt begins with the word woe, woe to Babylon. First, woe to Babylon because with each nation she plundered, she only increased her indebtedness to God. Second, woe to Babylon because the money from the plunder of nations was used to build her city, and therefore the city itself is a billboard highlighting her crimes. And since she has put her crimes on a billboard, her sins are now not hidden at all. Third, woe to Babylon because she's on the wrong side of history. History belongs to God, and God will fill the earth with his glory, and therefore Babylon will be destroyed. Fourth, woe to Babylon because God is going to make them drink the cup of his wrath. But then comes the final woe. Woe to Babylon because Babylon has been worshiping idols. Indeed, we know from history that the city was was filled with idols. They had gods of the sun, of of birth, of conception, of sickness, of mountains, of heaven, earth, water, grain, vegetation, wind, war and disaster, gods of death, indeed the list of her gods and of her idols numbered in the hundreds. Woe to Babylon because she worships idols. So I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 18 to 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to wooden things, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Of the five taunts against Babylon, this one is different. Each taunt prior to this one began with the word woe. Now this taunt contains the word woe as before, but this section begins by describing idolatry at first, and then it moves to the word woe. So why the change? Well, perhaps the reason for that is that all the woes presented here, this one is not just a condemnation of Babylon. This woe is the very reason why Judah herself is going to suffer condemnation. We know that although a number of righteous kings in Judah and passionate prophets had tried to stamp out idol worship in Judah, idol worship was amazingly resilient there. And of course, Judah had more than enough of its share of kings that encouraged idol worship. But even though idol worship was always there, it it didn't take upon itself an official status until the time of Solomon. Because Solomon was trying to consolidate his power and his empire, he marries a number of royal women from nation-states surrounding him in order to forge an alliance with those nations. So those women needed to have their own temples and their own gods, and so Solomon built those temples, filling Israel with idolatry. And from that time on, idol worship became enshrined in law, and it subverted all Israel, eventually leading to her own destruction. So before Habakkuk taunts Babylon for her idols, he has an opening statement that he wants to make about the very nature of idolatry, that is, what it is 
and why it's such a temptation to people. So let's read verse 18 again, and I'll read it one phrase at a time and consider what it says. Habakkuk says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? You know, this, if there's anything else, this defines idolatry. It's what idols are. Idols are made by human beings. Now, if we don't understand that about idolatry, we're going to miss the entire point. Isaiah the prophet, who has so much to say about idolatry, emphasized that very same thing. Speaking about Israel, he says in Isaiah 2 verse 8, their land was filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. Indeed, in Isaiah 44, Isaiah further explains what he means. He describes the craftsman who's making an idol from a piece of wood, and he cuts off half of the wood and he throws it into the fire to warm himself and he roasts his meat. And then in verse 17, he says, and the rest of it he makes into his God, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. You know, what's key here is that Isaiah has keen insight into the heart of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping that which our own hands have made. And so by extension, it is worshiping our creation and therefore even worshiping ourselves. Now, the issue shouldn't be missed, and I think this matter is essential to our definition of idolatry. You know, with due respect to Tim Keller, whom I respect immensely, I think he's wrong about your wife becoming an idol. The inherent nature of idolatry is that people make idols. And also, inherent to idolatry is the belief that I can create a god, and if I can create a god, I also become a god. And by the way, that's why idols don't necessarily need to be statues and figures. Idols can exist in our own mind when we, with our own mental imagination, create a God more to our liking. Perhaps the God we want always affirms us and tells us to believe in ourselves. Perhaps the God we make never calls us to judgment. Perhaps the God we make can be manipulated or bargained with or affirms that we're great and what we've done is great. Perhaps the God we make doesn't examine all that we do with perfect righteousness and confirms our opinions on things. But the gods we make are the product of our hands, and if we can create God, then we're the masters over God. And in this worldview, God does not create us. We create God. And if we create God, then God becomes our servant and exists to get us what we want. From February 7th through the 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Carousel, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call 1-800-663-2425. Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.18 asks the question, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a mental image, a teacher of lies? 
for its maker trust in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol. You know, we've seen that essential to understanding idolatry is that idols are those things that human beings create. But now Habakkuk takes this concept further. Not only is the idol made by human beings, once we've made it, they are counted on to protect one in the day of trouble. Do you see Habakkuk's point? Its maker trusts in his own creation. But how do you make an idol and then trust in it? Is that not the height of irrationality? Well, yeah, it is, but perhaps not, at least not in the mind of the maker of idols. Let me illustrate that from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet was a contemporary of Habakkuk. They both spoke to many of the same issues. They both realized that Babylon had been appointed by God to punish wicked Judah, and they both recognized that Babylon herself was a very evil nation. Furthermore, they both mentioned the same theme about idolatry, and so I'm reading Jeremiah 10, verses 3 to 5. He writes, A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Now, as entertaining as that description of idolatry is, please don't miss how serious that message is. A key part of Jeremiah's description of idolatry is his comparison to a scarecrow in a cucumber field. When birds see a scarecrow, they're frightened away, not because a scarecrow is capable of doing a single thing, but rather because birds believe them to be capable of doing something. The power of idols is not in themselves. Rather, the power is in the belief system of the worshiper. And that's why Jeremiah has to tell the people, do not be afraid of them, because in truth, a great many people were afraid of them. And that's why in the very next verse, after describing the idols that can't do evil or good, and for that matter, even walk on their own, Jeremiah will then say, there is none like you, O Lord. And then he adds, who will not fear you? Now, keeping that in mind, go back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18. Habakkuk says, for its maker, that is, the maker of the idol, trusts in his own creation. The Babylonians believed that the idols that they had made would be able to save them. You know, in contrast, you're going to remember that when we studied the beginning of the book of Habakkuk, God tells Habakkuk that he was raising up the Babylonians and they're going to burn Jerusalem to the ground. To which Habakkuk responds, but what will happen to the righteous? And, and God then says, the righteous shall live by faith. That is, the righteous are to respond by trusting in God. And, and that, my dear friends, is the heart of the matter. Whom will you trust? Do you trust your maker or do you trust that which you have made? And all periods of human history, that has been the greatest struggle that any human being has ever faced. But someone's going to say, so if that's what idolatry is, then what do we make of a passage like Colossians 3 verse 5? And if you don't know, that passage says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the common explanation of that passage is that whatever takes the place of God in your life is an idol. But I have said that an idol is something that human beings make. That is, it's the God we create. And then in vanity, we believe that this God will save us in the day of trouble. So we are in effect trusting in our own creation. So look again at Colossians. 
Covetousness, we're told, is idolatry. Well, how so? Well, because covetousness is related to greed, and greed is all about acquiring things, most often monetary things. Greed is all about accumulating more money than we can possibly ever use. Why would we do that? Well, you do that because what you have, that is, your vast wealth, will rescue you in the day of trouble. So your vast wealth will help you extend your power. Your vast wealth will help you get what you want and do away with the people that stand in your way. And in the end, it is what you have created. It is your wealth. This wealth is your God. And that's why covetousness is idolatry. Any God we create to deliver us in the day of trouble, that's an idol. See, the problem with idols is that they really are scarecrows in a cucumber field. In the day of trouble, they really do nothing at all. Israel was about to learn that. All the idols that now littered their landscape, even the official ones that the kings of Judah had set up, couldn't do one thing for them when trouble showed up. And so with this introduction to idolatry, an introduction Judah needed to hear, Habakkuk is now ready to utter his final taunt against Babylon. I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it. See, the reason Habakkuk taunts Babylon is not just that their debts are so high that they can't pay them. It's not just that they can't hide their debts, for the city itself is an advertisement of just how indebted they are. And it's not just because they're on the wrong side of history and that they are going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. The final and ultimate reason to taunt Babylon is because Babylon has put all their trust in a piece of stone that has no ability to to hear their cry for help when disaster strikes. And by the way, Do you think that's only Babylon's problem? You know, I can think of people who put magical necklaces around their necks to ward off evil, of people who light sacred candles in their house to bring about a spiritual atmosphere of harmony and peace. But I also know of people who who clothe themselves with greed for the day of trouble. And then there are those who convince themselves of a God who is the creation of their own imaginations. But when the trouble begins, and and here I'm speaking about the final trouble, the, the trouble of the judgment of God, all of this, all of these idols will not save you then. And of course, there are whole nations who tell themselves that, you know, God's on our side. It's never occurred to them that God's on his own side. And if they will not submit to him and to his righteousness, they have no hope. See how crazy it is when the day of trouble comes to look at what our own hands have made and to think that's going to deliver us. See, I'm reminded of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal are crying out to their God for most of that day, cutting themselves and shouting as loudly as they can. The problem with all the gods we create is that in the end of the day, they have no eyes, they have no ears, no hands, and no strength. They light no fires, and they inspire no confidence at all. They will deliver no one. Habakkuk 2 verse 20 ends by saying, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. (laughs) We might be tempted here to think that for Habakkuk, the temple he's referring to is the temple in Jerusalem, the one that Solomon had built. 
But I don't think that's what he means at all. Habakkuk was already said that the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem, and that must have included that temple. The temple wasn't safe at all. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah tells the people of Judah they should stop trusting in the temple because this very temple is soon going to be burned to the ground. Listen to what the prophet Micah said in Micah chapter 1, 2 to 3. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention to earth and, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord is in his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Clearly in Micah, the temple, well, that's in heaven. And from there, God emerges and destroys every center of worship that the human race has trusted in. And that's also what we have in Habakkuk. The Lord is seated in his temple in heaven, and from his dwelling he speaks. And when he speaks, whatever he says comes to be. What a contrast to the idols. They can't speak. But when God speaks, did you notice? Then let the earth stop speaking. And this is the true God. He's not like the gods of the nation, the gods that that we can argue with and the gods that sometimes get stuff wrong and the gods that we create out of our own fertile imagination and the gods that in the end will do nothing at all. When the Lord God of heaven speaks, the earth was created. When the Lord spoke, the walls of Jericho fell down. When the Lord spoke, the Babylonians burned Jerusalem to the ground. And when the Lord speaks again, Christ will appear in the heavens and the nations of the earth will mourn because of him. And so let all the earth put its hand to its mouth, for our God reigns. John, this whole area of idolatry, I think that's a really important one because I think we can get some misconceptions about it. So help us understand maybe some easier definitions of what an idol might look like. Anything that we worship that is not the one true God is in fact an idol. I think the matter is worship. And then when it comes to making something with our own hands, uh, we create something and fall down and worship that thing. Sometimes what we create is a mental image of God and we put our trust in that. Sometimes it's something else, but I think it's always got to do this. It's what we trust in to deliver us in the day of evil and that which is ultimately, you know, the desire of our heart. This will, this will protect me when anything other than God is our protector. Uh, we are, in fact, idolaters. We need to repent. Thanks so much, John. Look forward to more teaching next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-663 
2425.